You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Today, we get to begin a new series through a new part of the Bible. When we started the church three years ago, we started it um, in the book of Mark. We wanted to, I really wanted to start this, church, look, start this ch- church looking at who the real Jesus was. I feel there's a lot of false Jesuses out there, and Jesus gets a bad, um, bad reputation for things that he was never a part of. And so I wanted to make sure that, um, that Christ was preeminent in this church, and he was shown for who he was. So we went to the book of Mark, and it was awesome. And then we moved to the book of Genesis, a chance to look at bigger themes like God and the world he created, God and humanity that he made in his very image, and what happened with all of it. For our next book, I really wanted to go through a letter with you from the New Testament, a letter that addresses some of the issues our young church is facing currently, a letter that we can really relate to, to be spiritually formed by and mature in. And there's probably no better book, in my pastoral opinion, to do that with this young church than the book of 1 Corinthians. So would you please open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. We begin a new series today in this book called Corinthians, Stories from a Fledgling Urban Church. And we're going to see that's exactly what it was. It was a young church. It was just trying to get on its feet. It had all this zeal and all this momentum, but it was really, it was quite messed up at the same time. So if you please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, located in the New Testament right after Romans. I will read... The opening part, verse 1 through 3, and I'll pray. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, And called to be his holy people. Together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this church. Just three years ago birthing this church. And I say what Paul says, this is the church of God. This church belongs to no man. This church belongs to no movement. This church does not belong to any city. Jesus, this is your church, God. And I thank you for establishing your church. I thank you for what you're doing in this church. And Lord, together we we submit ourselves under your authority. The way that you have... Um, the way that you purify your church and the way that you make us more like you, God. I pray that we would look at this letter as a corporate letter, not just to the church in Corinth, but to, God, in a supernatural way, to, to this church, God, corporately. That we would read this letter like it was a letter to us. And that we would grow by it and be formed by it and shaped by it. And God, I submit my mouth to you and my mind and my heart to you. And I pray, God, that you would anoint me for this work to stand in front of a, a group of your people and proclaim your word. I ask God that you would help me. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. So what happens when God starts a church in the middle of a major, progressive, expensive to live in urban city? A city wrought by individualism, sexual immorality, competitive entrepreneurialism, radical consumerism, drunkenness, and spiritualities of every flavor. What happens when God starts a church in a city like that? Well, there's probably going to be a lot of problems in that church. And the reason why there's going to be problems in a church like that is because not only is the church of God in a city, not only is God's church in a city like Corinth, in a city like San Francisco, not only is the church of God in a city which is a miracle and an amazing thing, but the city has a way of getting into the church of God. The morals of a city, the pressures of a city, the ethics of a city, the worldview of a city has a way of seeping into the sacred gathering of God's called out people. And no church is immune from this. This church is not immune from it. Your church back home in Texas in the middle of the Bible Belt is not immune to it. Every church all the way down to Corinth, no church is immune from this. There are a lot of people who look back to the early church with a romantic idealism thinking, I don't know if you've ever heard this, like, if we could just get back to the way that church was done in the first century, all our problems would go away. Like, we just get, we start meeting in homes again, we need to start, like, you know, like, building tents again, and, like, just drinking wine, I mean, taking communion all the time. Like, if we just did that and had love feasts all the time, then we would get back to where the church needs to be, and then all our, all our problems will go away. We have a, a letter right here in front of us from the first Gentile church. Though there was Jews in this church, this was the first Gentile church in the first century. And it reads like a letter that might be passed around this church today. Their problems are the same problems we deal with in 2013 because if some things remain over 2,000 plus years, is that people are broken and God is in the process of restoring us and making us holy. And there is a ton of mess along the way. That process of God taking a people and making him like himself is a messy endeavor. And that mess, that, that, that Paul dealing with that mess is what the book of 1 Corinthians is all about. So this is how I want to go through our text this morning. Just two points, not, not three, maybe we'll get to three next week, but just two points today as an introduction. The beauty, point one, the beauty and then the difficulty of God's church in a city. The beauty of God's church in a city, but also the difficulty of God's church in a city. First, the beauty. The beauty of God's church in a city can be seen in the seven words in verse 2. I don't know if, if you picked up on them. I don't know if they even stood out to you. I don't know if you just kind of, if you read through it, if you've read through the book of 1 Corinthians, you're kind of like, oh yeah, I, just, I saw that there. I just kind of moved beyond it. But look at the, 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 these seven words in, in verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth. That's the beauty. The fact that there was a church at all in a city like Corinth is a miracle. Corinth was a part of the ancient Roman Empire. Here is a very cool map. I don't think I've ever used a map in this church before. Here is your first map, church. We are becoming like a real church now. We have maps and stuff. <laughs> Corinth was a part of the ancient Roman Empire. You see that little, you see it highlighted there at the bottom? Corinth is located at the bottom of, of Greece. That little bay on the northwest side of Corinth, see that little bay there? It's called the Bay of Corinth, kind of like San Francisco Bay. Then there was this 4.5 narrow 
a 4.5 mile narrow stretch of land called an isthmus where it opened up again to another harbor just right below Corinth you'll see Centria which opened up to Asia and Ephesus and, and, uh, and, and Colossae you'll see that to the right there. Now Corinth had two harbors you see it right in the middle that little stretch of land between the two two bodies of water that 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 was basically Corinth right there. During the time of Paul's writing in the first century all cargo and trade and major commerce and travel was done by sea. Anyone who traded between Asia and the west or anyone who traded between the, the, the east and the west, or anyone who's going to Rome, anyone who traveled in the Roman Empire had to go through or around Greece. You see Greece there? You had to go through or around Greece. Now, there's two options in traveling around or through Greece. Option one, sail around the bottom of Greece. So they can sail all the way around, but once you did, there was a problem. You had to go through the Cape of Malaya. Do you say the Cape of Malaya right at the bottom? The winds and the tides were deadly on the Cape of Malaya. Especially during the winter, it would take six days just to go around the Cape. Sailors had a saying that said, see Malaya twice and die. Okay, when, when hardcore sailors say, and die, <laughs> that means you're going to die. Okay, so they're like, you go around there twice, you might, you might get around there once in a lifetime, but if you go twice, you're going to die. Okay, now, option two was they can sail right up to Corinth. They can go through the Bay of Corinth or the other harbor of Corinth. They can sail right up to Corinth, dock their ship. Give your sailors a couple days off to party in Corinth. Then, depending on the size of your boat, they would either, A, pick up your boat or unload your cargo and take it down a long 4.5-mile stone-paved road called the Dolcas. They made this amazing road. They're going, we're gonna, we're, we're not, you don't have to sail around it. We'll just move your boat over this little stretch of land. Or we'll unload your cargo, put all your cargo on here, and roll it across and load it up on another ship, and you can go on your way. And then your sailors get a chance to relax and rest and hang out in Corinth and have a great time. Today, if you go on Google Earth, you'll see that they now have a canal for the same reason and the same route. Most everyone chose to pay the taxes and toll and go through Corinth. Corinth stood at the crossroads, the crossroads and the intersection between the north and the south and the east and the west for business, trade, and travel. Now what all this means was that Corinth was a busy, bustling, cosmopolitan business center with tons of money, with tons of culture and influence. So it attracted people from all over the Roman Empire, from the East and the West, those who were looking for opportunity, new ventures, possibilities of employment, enjoyment, and tourism. It attracted everyone. Corinth was also home to the Isthmian Games, which stood second in importance only to the Olympic Games. Maybe you've heard of them. This city loved sport. Corinth was also a city filled with religious pluralism. It was the home of the gods Epaphrodite, Apollo, Poseidon, to name a few. Epaphrodite was the goddess of sex and love and relationships and fertility and success. Epaphrodite was worshipped through, through temple prostitution. Corinth was sexed up in a sexually progressive city. Apollo was the god of wisdom and health and healing. Corinth was even home to the medical community. Corinthians didn't worship one god. They worshipped many gods to make sure all of life was covered. 
They had a God for sex and a God for money and a God for travel and a God for family and a God for war. The people who lived in Corinth believed that there wasn't just one way to live. There's not just one God. There's not just one religion. There's not just one way to live. There's not just one God to serve. There are many ways to fulfillment and joy. There are many ways. Corinth was indeed pluralistic in every way, shape, and form. In summary, Corinth was rich, powerful, technologically advanced, highly educated. One historian said Corinth might have made Athens seem like a slumbering university city. This is where people went and got educated and moved to Corinth. It was and it sounds familiar. It was progressive in, in its worship of sex and idolatry. It was the center for tourism and a magnet for entrepreneurs. And where sailors went to send their brains out. It was pretty much San Francisco during the gold rush. Or San Francisco today, depending on how you look at it. Uh, th- this is one um, commentator said, Corinth's geographical position as an intellectual center for trade together with its attraction for business and economic prosperity, already sets the stage for regarding it as deeply competitive. This was the ethos of Corinth. Deeply competitive. And you're going to see all of these characteristics come out in the letter. They were deeply competitive, self-sufficient, and uh, an entrepreneurial culture marked by ambitions to succeed in what we nowadays term a cast of mind shaped by consumerism. This, is, this was the ethos. This is, this is what, what Corinth was. This is what they stood for. This is the, the people that lived there. This is what they all believed. However, with all of Corinth's pretensions to intellectualism and power, though it was a very powerful city, they did have quite a reputation. Sexual vice had gained such a reputation in Corinth that a Greek verb was coined after being a Corinthian, which literally meant to be Corinthian, meant to be sexually immoral. If you're all, oh, you're just being a Corinthian. That, would, that meant, that word, that was coined, that verb, to be Corinthian, to Corinthianize, meant you were immoral, you were sexually perverse, you were depraved. That's what they coined. So if you were a Corinthian, that's what you were. It's like, you know how Vegas is trying to, you know, slogan their whole city. Like, uh, what happens here stays here. It was kind of like that. What happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. Whenever a Corinthian appeared in any sort of play, they would always be drunk. So whenever a Corinthian showed up in a play, that Corinthian would play drunk. Everyone loved to party in Corinth. I, I read a tweet. I love quoting tweets because I think it's weird. But um, <laughs> I read this tweet this week. It said, if NYC is a city that never sleeps... SF is a city that starts drinking at 2, falls asleep at 11, and then rolls into work wearing a flannel. I think our city can relate to a city like Corinth. And in Corinth, in ancient Corinth, STDs were so rampant in that ancient city that that there's a museum today in Corinth that on display is a large number of clay votives of human genitals that have been offered to the God for healing of that part of the body apparently ravaged by venereal disease. This is Corinth. And this is the place where there is now a church of God. This is a place, so when you read 
that, those little, that, that small little throwaway phrase to the church of God in Corinth, the very fact that there is a church of God at all in Corinth is amazing. And this wasn't a church of a bunch of imported Bible Belt Christians trying to hold it down in, in Corinth. This wasn't like a bunch of Christians that moved from Jerusalem to Corinth going, oh, we want to live our little lives out in Corinth now. And we like hold it down and try to be this like little enclave of holiness in Corinth. No, these were Corinthians that filled the church. People who live in this city under these customs and under the Corinthian worldview for years. People who went to visit temple prostitutes and offered food to idols all over the city. And so when temple prostitution comes up in the letter, it's because this is the way they lived for, th- for hundreds of years. This is the way the people that, that lived in that church lived for years. Maybe their whole life. When they were offering food to idols because it was going on in their church. Look at this. Paul describes who they were. He says in chapter 6, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And then look at this. And that is what some of you were. These were not, this was not a church that grew up in the church. These were, this was a church that grew up in Corinth, with the worldview of Corinth, with the lifestyle of Corinth, and they were radically saved by the gospel of Jesus. And they made up this church. And Paul says, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Don't take those seven words in verse 2 lightly to the church of God in Corinth. The very fact that there was a church of God is a beautiful thing. The beauty of the work of God in a city is that he can transform, that the gospel can transform. God can save. This gospel has power. It can renew. And this is why Paul will say just in a couple verses from now that those who are perishing, to them the message of the cross is foolishness. But to those who are being saved, the message of the cross is the power of God. This gospel has power. This gospel has power to change. This gospel is powerful in a city like Corinth in the first century, and it's powerful in a city like San Francisco today. And this beauty is further seen in the word church. The word for church in Greek is the word ekklesia. Ekklesia in Greek. Now when you literally translate the word ekklesia, it's translated the called out ones, if you just translate it literally. It's taken from Greek words that mean to call out. But denoted in Greek culture, what the word meant in Greek society and Greek culture was an assembly. Ecclesia was an assembly or a gathering. What Paul is saying in his usage of the word ecclesia for the church in Corinth, Paul is saying the church is not a building. This church is not this auditorium. This church was not the Swedish American Hall. This church is not a building. It's not brick and mortar. The church is the gathering of called out ones. The church is a gathering, an assembly of people who've been called out. Now, what are they called out of? 
the church is called out of Corinth. The church of God called out of San Francisco. Now let me explain what I, what I mean by that so you don't think that, we're, that we don't like the city or that they were told to not like Corinth. They were called out of Corinth, but not in a way that they were to leave Corinth. Paul doesn't say to leave Corinth. Not that they were supposed to hate Corinth. Not that they were no longer to be civically minded in Corinth. Not that they weren't to enjoy the people and the food and the culture and the Isthmian games in Corinth. It was that they were to be an alternative city in the city of Corinth. They were to be the people of God in Corinth. The church is a gathering of people who have been called out of sin and death and redeemed by Jesus. Not because of their own doing, not because they go to church, not because they say the right prayer or believe the right things, but because the grace of God in Jesus Christ has found them. And because of this gospel, they are called out of sin and death. Because of the gospel of Jesus, the church is called out of sin and death, but still live in a world surrounded by sin and death. And the call now for the follower of Jesus is not to be better. If you grew up in a church that just said, you're a Christian now, be better. That's, that's not what this is saying. That's not what Paul is writing about in 1 Corinthians. It's not to be more religious. It's not to clean your life up. The call of the church in Corinth, the call of the church in San Francisco, the followers of Jesus, the call of God is this. Be who you are. That's the call. Look at verse 2 again. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified. That word in Greek literally means holied. To those holied in Christ Jesus called to be holy. Isn't that so cool? Write that in your Bible or on your phone. Just scribble on your phone. Just write on your phone. Those called out. To those holied. Called to be holy. You are holied and you're called to be holy. Paul says that the church is made up of those who are holied. If Jesus has redeemed your life, if you have believed upon Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are holied. This word, this idea is taken from the Old Testament uh, items in the temple. Whenever there was a temple used for God, in, uh, an item in the temple used for God, it was, um, it was to be set apart for God. So, so it was, let's say, a candlestick. This candlestick can't be used for common things. It's for God's purposes. It's for God's temple. It's to be holied, set apart for God. The church is the holied people of God, set apart for God and his purposes. You, church, are holied, set apart for God. That's what this is saying. This is what Paul is saying. Meaning you are dedicated to God as his child. Now whether you are a good child or not is not the issue. We're not dealing with that right now. The point here is that you are his child. You are holied. You are sanctified. Acceptance in God's community, into God's family, does not depend in any way on my character or your character or your behavior. It depends totally on accepting the free gift of salvation and life through Jesus Christ. It's dependent completely on what Christ does for us. One commentator, one writer comments on this. A significant part of the purpose of this letter is to help the Corinthians gain a better grasp 
of their true identity and reflect it in their behavior inside and outside the church. This is who you are. This is what Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. This is who you are. Now be who you are in the church and be who you are in Corinth. This is who you are. You're holy. Now be holy in the church and be holy in Corinth. This is why this this letter was, though it paints Corinth in a pretty bad light or, or the Corinthian Christians in a pretty bad light, I thank God that it was passed along, preserved, and eventually canonized to be in our, in, 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 our, in our Bibles. We need to learn from this. Because church, you and I, were holied and we're called to be holy. Now, what I meant when I said they are called out of Corinth and we San Francisco is that their new and true identity in Christ because of their new identity in Christ, because of their, their true identity in Christ, they are invited to see the world in a dramatically new way. The light, in light of the values shaped by the Christian story, they were to see their whole world living under a different narrative. They were to see sex differently. They were to see money differently and power differently and wisdom differently and work differently and love differently. And why were they to see these things differently? Because they were not Corinthians anymore. They were Christians who lived in Corinth. So Paul tells the Corinthians over and over again, this is who you are. This is who you are. The way Paul corrects, shapes, and forms the church in Corinth around Christian ethics is in terms of becoming what you are. You are holied, and you're called to be holy. Become what you are. Now, that be holy, do you see that up there? Now, you are holy, now you're called, your call is to be holy. Now, that be holy part is what brings us to our second and last point. This is where, this is where Corinth gets a little bit sketchy. The difficulty of God's church in a city can be summed up really well by Gordon Fee, he says this. As former pagans, they brought to the Christian faith a pagan worldview, an attitude toward ethical behavior. Although they were the Christian church in Corinth, an inordinate amount of Corinth was yet in them, emerging in a number of attitudes and behaviors that required radical surgery without killing the patient. That's what this book tries to do. It's like, no, there's still a lot of San Francisco left in this church. We're going to have to do some radical surgery to remove those things without killing you. That's what Paul is writing for. He's like, yes, you are the church of God in Corinth. That's a beautiful thing. God saved people. And there's a, there's a young, growing, and vibrant church here. But listen, you guys are still very much Corinthianized. You are still, yes, yeah, still are, are, are very much living the church of God is in Corinth, but it was clear that their, through their lifestyles and their attitudes and their behaviors that Corinth was in the church of God. There's a, a great illustration that's been passed along to every pastor on the, on the planet about the illustration in, uh, of, of, of a boat. The boat has to be in the water to function. That's actually what a boat is made for. And to function properly, has to be, the boat has to be in the water, but water cannot be in the boat. Or else it will sink. This is exactly what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. You're to be in Corinth, yes, but 
Corinth can't be in you or this whole thing's going to go down. There's so many gray areas that the Corinthian Christians are hardly distinguishable from the Corinth in which they live. You could not tell a Christian from a Corinthian. See, the difficulty in the church of God in Corinth was in too many ways they look far more like Corinth than they do God's holy people in Corinth. They saw money the same way as the Corinthians did. They saw sex and power and entitlement the same way. They drank the same way Corinth drank. There were people in the church in Corinth getting drunk at community group. Sound familiar? Oh, yes, it's happened. You're like, wait, has that happened? Oh, yeah, that's happened. (laughs) Did you know that that Christians drink differently? A friend of mine uh, told me this a couple years ago. He said, he heard this a long time ago, so I don't know where this comes from. The world drinks to forget. The world drinks to forget their morals or their boundaries or their pain or their pressure. But Christians drink to remember. This is what Paul is trying to teach the church in Corinth. You guys are getting drunk at communion. And you guys show up for a feast. And, ev- and the, the rich people run forward and they bring the best wines and they drink it themselves. And they bring the best food and they eat it themselves. So you guys are all drunk. And then the people that come in late because they're working so long and late hours, they come in and there's no more wine left. And everyone rich is just, just smashed. And this is church. Church is going on. And Paul says, do you, do you, do you, guys, you guys are supposed to view drinking differently. When you come together, you come together to remember. Remember what Christ has done. The Christians drink to remember. We drink to remember Christ's body and Christ's blood poured out for us. That's why we do it. We see the world differently because of what Christ has done. And this is why Paul says, as often as you drink that cup, do it in remembrance of Jesus. This letter is Paul dealing with the mess that is taking place in the church in Corinth. And every church has messes. This church is messy. With the age of our church and the pace of growth in our church, there's a ton of mess in this church. And for every complaint you can give about this church, I can come up with 10, maybe 20. But we have to deal graciously and honestly with our mess. And every problem the Corinthian church had grew out of an inability to let the gospel message fully reshape their Gentile, Greco-Roman lives. Whether they misunderstood that message or they rejected it altogether. Every problem our San Franciscan church has grows out of our inability to let the gospel message fully reshape our Western, individualistic, postmodern, post-postmodern, whatever lives. Every problem that we have in our church comes because we haven't let the gospel fully reshape the way that we view relationships. We haven't let the gospel fully reshape the way that we look at alcohol. We haven't let it reshape the way we look at climbing a corporate ladder. We haven't really let it reshape the the way that we view self-expression and individuality. We haven't let the gospel completely be rubbed in completely to our hearts and our souls to to reshape, to give us a new worldview. This is what the, the gospel message does. If you've taken the gospel message to mean some therapeutic, I don't feel bad for what I did this weekend thing, you've missed the point. The gospel message reshapes everything. Everything. 
And this is what Paul tries to do through this lengthy letter. Now, we can easily read the whole letter as merely, merely as, as an argumentative tract, almost bossy at times. People, I'll talk about this next week, there's a lot of people who do not like Paul. He's yelling at everyone. It's like he's writing just to slap everyone. It's like, you did this, and you know, I'm going to come down there right now if you don't like. If you read the letter, and Paul offends everyone. We'll talk about that again next week. It's really fun. I mean, he offends everyone in this letter. Read it at home this week, and just tell me if you're not offended. At some part in this letter, you're like, oh my gosh, did he just say that? What translation do I have? Is that like even a thing? Like, can, can he say that? Are we going to really get to that? Like, this is what Paul does. He, it looks like he's just angry and argumentative and trying to just slap everyone. That's not his point. The central concern of Paul is Jesus. The name of Jesus occurs eight times in the first nine verses. Paul cannot stop talking about Jesus because without Jesus, nothing else he said or did made any sense. His life didn't even make any sense. What he wants the Corinthians to get a hold of most of all is is what it means to have Jesus in the middle of your story. To have Jesus reshape your life, to have Christ and and him crucified and what that means and his resurrected life, what that means to, to reshape your life and your thoughts and your imagination. And if they can do that, if they can place Jesus right in the center, all the other issues that they will deal with will sort themselves out. And so Paul finishes his greeting like this, grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The sum total of God's activity toward his human creatures is found in the word grace. Grace has been given to us. Now, if, if you were invited here by a friend, if you've come here and you're, you're probably thinking, wow, this is like a gnarly church. Like, you're going to change the way I see the world? That's a huge, I mean, I'm not going to do that. I, 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 the Spirit of God will do that. But the goal is this. The, the, the hope isn't that, that this letter will beat our church up and like, tell us to stop doing the things that we're doing. The hope is that the grace of God captures our imaginations. That the grace of God captures our heart. That the grace of God, God giving himself to us mercifully and bountifully in Christ comes alive to us. This is not deserved. It can't be achieved. It can't be bought. The sum total of these benefits of the grace of God are experienced by the recipients of God's, by the word peace. Grace and peace. That word peace is is the word shalom in Hebrew. It means wholeness. This is the goal, to make you whole. Peace in all your relationships. Peace with God, with others, with self, with creation, Everything in its right order and in right place. This is what the grace of God does. This is what Christ does. One flows out of the other. The grace of God allows us to experience the peace of God. And this is what we're in for. And this is what I hope happens. Yes, we will be formed by this letter. We'll be shaped by this letter. And I pray that our church grows in depth as we study this letter but I pray it would not be some religious endeavor to be better. It is as the grace of God, that undeserved, unmerited favor of God falls on this church 
in a miraculous and powerful way. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for your grace and mercy for this church that you have given yourself for us. That you have died, that you have poured out your your blood and sacrifice, a sacrificing atonement for our sins. And I ask God that those who have trusted in you and begin to have begun to walk with you and they would know the fellowship of God. The grace of God would would capture our hearts again. And that the gospel of Jesus Christ would reshape everything. I pray God as we go through this this book, I pray, God, that you would make us more like Jesus, that we would be who we are. This church is holied. God, make us holy. You have made us holy by your blood. I pray that we would be holy. I ask, God, whatever needs to take place in our hearts, whatever needs to take place with the priority of our relationships, what happened? that we would just walk in who we are because of what you have made us. In Jesus' name, amen.